welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. In this episode, we are talking about chapter four of The Subtle Knife, Trepanning. I'm okay. I'm okay. How are you? I'm all right. I've had quite a dramatic oh my god past you couple have. of weeks. You have <laughs> last week. I was whinging because I had achy thumbs and arthritis hands, basically, and that has continued through into this week. And then I've had the additional bonus drama of a small house fire. I I can't believe it. Rich messaged me and she was like, "Oh my god, my kitchen's on fire." I was like, "What the fuck?" Just some just casual lockdown drama. Um, yeah, so we were all sat around our house working in our various rooms and suddenly the lamp that I was working by cuz like the days are gloomy enough now that I just have to have a lamp on all day long. And my lamp just went out. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And then I like went downstairs because I was like, oh, somebody's obviously like blown a fuse or something. And then I was like, oh, it does smell a bit smoky. And there was just smoke coming out the top of the dishwasher. Sarah came downstairs too. And we were both just looking at the dishwasher and we were like, fuck, what do we do? What do we do? What do you do? Is it bad? Is it bad enough that we call the fire people? I don't know. I don't know. And then we were like, guys. And Johnny and Will came downstairs. (laughs) Um, And we're both just staring at the dishwasher as well. And we started to hear like, crackling so we knew that there was like physical fire inside the dishwasher it wasn't just something like overheating and smoldering it was a fire we're like fuck okay so we very quickly ran upstairs closed all the doors so that the smoke couldn't like damage all of our soft furnishings and bedrooms and stuff we'll switched off the electrics for the house this is a note people of what to do (laughs) i am honestly so impressed because i don't know if i would have known to like i would have thought to do all the stuff that you did yeah so we'll switch the electrics off and then we just went and stood outside and called the fire people i think as one of us was running around closing doors, Johnny was outside on the phone. The firemen said that we did a very, we did all the right things. Oh, amazing. We did a good job by calling them quickly. So, and yeah, just a blip in the dishwasher. Like they don't know, we'd not stacked it funnily or done anything wrong. Like, but yeah, never put your dishwashers on when you're out of the house because they could catch fire. <laughs> that is my lesson to everybody. It was very scary and we had to completely clean so much of the house to try and get the smoke smell out it's taken a full week to for us to like leave the house and when we walk back in we don't get hit in the face with like the smell of like gross burningness god it's fucking horrible so dramatic (laughs) yeah so dramatic and the thing is as well is that i know you said this but it's a good fucking job that it wasn't overnight because we put our dishwasher on and our washing machine on or dryer or whatever overnight all the time we've stopped doing it now since you had your fire Mm -hmm. but fucking hell can you imagine if you didn't if you slept because you would sleep through a lot of that like you wouldn't wake up to a faint smell of smoke and you wouldn't have noticed that the electric has gone off yeah the bloke from the fire thing that did so there's all the all the fire people that put out the fire were doing that and then there was a guy with a clipboard that was kind of doing the like general i guess they just like survey people when they have fires if there's another fire in that property they'll know that we're risky people i guess (laughs) i don't know um but he was saying like don't put apply like white goods like large appliances just don't put them on overnight or when you leave the house like it's really easy to just be like oh just do it because it's so convenient but that's one of their main things that they get called out for and usually it's the washing machine and not dishwasher 
He was like, oh, dishwashers are rare. It's usually the fluff trap in a washer dryer that does it. Oh, my God. Empty your fluff traps, people. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds wrong. It does. But yeah, so ridiculous week. And then I kind of feel like I've just lost a week's worth of time to all the faff surrounding that and then not being able to do a full day's work because I've had achy hands. So I'm just, I'm a bit low on spoons at the moment. I feel you. I feel you. How have you been? Anything more exciting? I mean, we've we've all gone back into heavier lockdown now. Yeah. So Uh, I'm all right. You know, get getting by. Uh, What have I done? Watched all of the Haunting of Bly Manor. Finished that yesterday. (gasps) You finished it. I've not finished it yet. Don't tell me anything. I won't tell you anything. Spooky. (laughs) What I will say is that I'm slightly disappointed. I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Hill House. Even from, like, the first couple of episodes, I was like, this is nowhere near as good as Hill House. I think Hill House just had, like, this, like, perfect combination. It was a really good recipe for success, and it was the first thing you're seeing from that director of that style. It's always... It's like how the second season of Killing Eve is never going to be as Mm. good as the first one. I just think in Bly Manor, there's loads of, like, fluff that doesn't need to be in there, and, like, a couple of, of, like, characters that I don't think are, are, are great. And I think with Hill House... The Bent Neck Lady um, episode of Hill House is one of my favourite episodes of TV ever. There is nothing dead in that. Like, lol, there is. there are dead things in that, but I mean, there's like nothing like... <laughs> there's no not, empty air Exactly, yeah, yeah. There's nothing that's not needed and it's so fucking good and the storytelling is amazing. And I just don't think that that is as apparent in, uh, in Blind Manor. I did enjoy it though. I think like if I wasn't comparing it to Hill House so much, I probably would have been like, oh, this is really good. But yeah. That's it for me. I mean, <laughs> I'm not doing much else. <laughs> Hooray. Hooray. Hey, Faye. Hey. Do you want to know what is exciting? Tell me. We've got to say a great big thank you to a new patron. Yay. Who is it? It is Ashley. Thank you so much, Ashley, for being a patron. Thank you We so love much. you forever. We do. Thank <laughs> you so much for supporting us. It is much appreciated. And I suppose on that note, segueing into another thing, is that we did a fun little Halloween watch along of Hocus Pocus with all our patrons. Yeah, that's a fun thing that happened this week. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> it was so much fun. We did it quite late UK time just to make sure that all our patrons could join us because we have pa- we're lucky to have patrons from all over the world. So I went, sat on my bed with a little bed desk and yeah. ate some cookies and watched Hocus Pocus and chatted with everyone. It was so fun amazing i made will and sarah watch it with me because will wanted to watch it for halloween (laughs) and we'd spent the day doing halloween crafts and also cleaning the smoke smell out of the house um (laughs) the morning was cleaning the smoke smell and the afternoon was hanging halloween decorations on the things that were still vaguely smelly (laughs) (laughs) and yeah and then we watched hocus pocus in the evening it was so good it was really fun like watching and typing along on discord and um there's a running thing for a 90s children film. They sure do use the word virgin as an oh insult God, a lot. So and every time, every time they said it, someone in the Discord, probably me or you, was like, virgin, drink. And everyone had like post little drinks emoji to say that we were having a drink. <laughs> it was great. It was so cute. We'll probably be probably do more of them. We were thinking about uh, films to watch in that chat and we were talking about bring it on, somebody mentioned bring it on. And we were like, how do we link that? to his dark materials because obviously Hocus Pocus was Halloween themed and we wanted to do something Halloween but for Bring It On I was like how do we link that and I think somebody in the discord said Lynn wrote the musical I'm like yes he fucking did that's a link we'll take it oh yes (laughs) yes 
brilliant. We should definitely watch like maybe like Logan because that was one of Daphne Keane's oh, first shit. outings. Yeah, That'd be such a good group watch. Yeah, I, I liked that film a lot actually mm. when it came out. Like we said, we're going to do more of those at some point in the coming months. Uh, yeah, if you want to join us on Patreon, you probably know it by now, but it's patreon.com forward slash HDMPod. Woo! Yes! Woo. Yes. So, we've got a little list of things to talk about this week. It's very oh, professional yeah. right here. I'm so excited. The one thing that I wanted to mention is... I'm sorry, I like flung my book up. It's on the, <laughs> it's on the list, but like it just made me laugh when I found it. So I was making my notes for this chapter last week. And we've been like really cautious about saying whether Will's world is our world, because it's very similar to our world, but it's not confirmed that it's our world. And then I opened the book the other day and saw, in my version, I don't know if it's in every... Is it in your version? It is in my version too. <laughs> <laughs> we're really good at this and we're so professional. And we're really thorough. Mm, we're very detail-oriented, <laughs> clearly. There's a paragraph at, right at the beginning before you even like get to the first page, before you even get to the contents, and it says... The Subtle Knife is the second part of a story in three volumes which was begun by Northern Lights. This volume moves between three universes. The universe of Northern Lights, which is like ours but different in many ways. The universe we know, and a third universe, which differs from ours in other ways again. So, we don't need to be careful. <laughs> Does yours also say the final volume of the trilogy, The Amber Spyglass, moves between several universes? No. Mine does! What the fuck?! <laughs> And mine's older than yours as well. I wonder if they thought, uh, I wonder with mine if they thought, oh, uh, let's take it out because we don't want to say anything about the Amber Spyglass. We don't want to like spoil it in any way. I mean, maybe with mine, they were just like, buy the next one, buy the next one. Oh yeah, with mine, they were like, we've already sold a fucking billion of these. We don't need to like, <laughs> we don't need to get people to buy the next one. It's fine. Yeah. Wow. Was that a spoiler? I don't know, but it's written in my book, so I don't care. It can't like, be, It's yeah. written at the front of my book. <laughs> yeah. Also, mine um, came as a like little box set with all three, so maybe that's why, because it knows that I've already bought the Amber Spyglass. So. <laughs> They're not trying to make you buy it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. If you have any strong feelings about that, you can send us an email. Send did you like my email. segue? I did. I just did we really love segue. an email. <laughs> we are in the process of collecting up emails for a mailbag episode. We've had quite a few in the past few weeks that are really, we're really excited to talk about. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for information on when we will do a mailbag. It may well be a New Year's mailbag yeah, who knows? Um, by the time we get round to it, but we promise we will. <laughs> we promise we will. We're very, we're very aware that we have season two coming up uh, on the cards and we will be very, very, very busy. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled for fun season two stuff from us. We've maybe spoke to a few people already, you know, got a few interviews potentially lined up. Who knows? I'm, I'm not saying for sure. How could I? <laughs> <laughs> You're so coy right now, Faye. <laughs> uh... So... If you do want to send us an email, you can send it to herdarmaterialspod at gmail.com and we bloody love an email. <laughs> I have one thing that I would like to say to you, Rich. What is it that you would like to say to me? Happy podcastversary. <laughs> Happy podcastversary. Oh, we're a year old. We're one. It's so exciting. It is so exciting. Can you believe? And a little bit scary. It's a bit scary, but like I think... About all the things that we've achieved in a year of podcasting. And we didn't even think that we would get one listener. And here we are having interviewed Daphne Keane and all the people in the TV series and actually have people that listen to us and people that want to support us on Patreon. It's madness. It is. I am consistently surprised, shocked and a little bit scared by the entire affair. So 
I'm really happy that you awkwardly sent me a text while I was road tripping through Canada. Oh my God. Remember when you could like road trip through Canada and go on holiday? It's compounded by the fact that we are like a world away from where we were this time last year. Yeah, that's actually something that I'd not really thought about, but yeah, we truly are. I was road tripping through Canada. I had recently sent Faye a text asking if she wanted a green mug that was exactly like the green mug that Giles uses in Buffy the Vampire Slayer that I'd found in a vintage shop. We were talking about whether we'd each listen to like the most recent episode of Buffering the Vampire Slayer. And then out of the blue, Faye's like, hey, Rach, do you want to start a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) And it's great. There's screenshots of that conversation on our Instagram and our Twitter. It was so sweet. (laughs) It was so funny because like I'd been thinking about it and then I'd mentioned it to Liam and I was like, oh, I wonder if Rach would be up for it. Because if you remember, we'd previously had a conversation quite recently to when I'd sent that message saying, oh, I don't think I could ever start a podcast because I don't think I've got anything to talk about. I was like, I actually kind of want to do that. And then sent you that message and I was so scared and I didn't know what to say. So it was really like awkward. And I was like, fuck's sake. I love it. I'm so here for your awkwardness. It's <laughs> it's the dream. I'm really happy. Yay. And yeah, as if we've spent a year podcasting. I'm yeah. a podcaster. We're a podcaster. <laughs> Could we be more millennial? <laughs> I know. It's outrageous, isn't it? One of the other things is... We're getting through so many things here, Rich. We've got quite the housekeeping list to get through, haven't we? (laughs) So professional. One of the other things that we wanted to remind you of is that we have a shop. We've got some merch, uh, some bookmarks, some stickers in our merch shop, which is hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. And just to let you know that the sticker sheets of the Northern Lights artwork, so that 24 sticker sheet, it, they are quite limited. We won't be making any more of those, so get them before they go. They shall not be printed again, except for perhaps at the very, very, very end of the podcast, I may do a collection of all three books worth of stickers, if I can, if we have time. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's so far away. It truly is. Yeah, so get on that if you, if you, if you can, and if you want to uh, support us that way, that would be really helpful. We had a lot of fun creating them. And it's all Rachel's artwork, which we all know and love, so why not? If, like many of us, you are looking after the pennies right now because there's a global pandemic and everybody's struggling, there are other ways that you can support us. And one of those ways is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you can leave a review, leave one there, make it a good one. And we're currently doing a thing where we are rewarding people for reviewing us by putting everybody into a big hat prize draw and when we hit 50 reviews we will pull some names out of the hat and they'll get some free merch some free bookmarks maybe some stickers who knows in order to enter that though you do have to send us a screenshot of your review to our email herdarmaterialspod at gmail.com just so that it's easy for us to keep track of all the entries and so that we know how to contact you to tell you that you've won some stuff yeah Yeah. please do that I think you can also review on Facebook Yes, you can, because we've had some on Facebook. Yes. So yes, um, that's another option if wherever you listen doesn't let you review, because I know that there are some services that don't have that option, so that is always an option for you. But yeah, we'd appreciate it. It helps other people find the podcast that might like His Dark Materials, and also I've told it helps with SEO, whatever that means. It helps with the scary tech stuff <laughs> yes, in some way we don't understand. <laughs> there you go, it helps with the scary tech stuff, and we always we... need help with that. Love the scary tiger. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, 
God, hey, Faye. Hey. Is it time for me to ask you what your demon would have been this week? It is. We've, we've finished the list of things we wanted to talk about. So yes, it is. Yeah. Hey, Faye, what would your demon have been this week? I think, I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, because like I, you all know I have a terrible, terrible memory. So apologies if I've gone down this little rabbit hole before, but I feel like it would need to be some kind of like woodland creature in like I'm thinking of like when Snow White had all the little animals help her clean because I just feel like I'm cleaning all the fucking time because we're in our flats and houses all the time we're not going out we're not doing anything things get dirty and dusty and horrible really quickly and I feel like all I do is clean and I just want some help oh what would you get what would it be do you know I don't know what would you what do you think is the potentially most helpful woodland creature if they were to come to life and come to life come uh, and help me clean well the like classic snow white type image is always a bluebird i Mm. think yeah but they wouldn't be that helpful in cleaning they'd probably poop everywhere (laughs) um maybe it's a little bit left of woodland perhaps but like a beaver would be really useful because they're really good with their hands. They love building things. You could teach one how to like, instead of build, like tight, tidy. <laughs> um, maybe. Good. Yeah, let's go with beaver. I like that. I like that choice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> what about you? What would your demon be? I was thinking about what I could be, what I've been feeling recently. And then it struck me, it's October. It's spooky season. It is. Why aren't I a spooky animal? Oh God, and I then... didn't even think about that. <laughs> I thought about how I've had a really hard week. And have you seen the meme? And it's somebody holding a tiny little bat and they're holding a microphone up to the bat and it says, as you can see, I'm really small and I'm dealing with a lot right now. Oh, yes, yes. My demon would be that bat. Or more specifically, because I was looking at types of bats to try and work out what kind of bat I wanted to be. And there's a bat called a hoary bat. It's really cute. I'm going to send you a picture of a hoary bat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's one of the cutest and softest looking bats. It honestly looks like the softest thing in the world. And it's got a really cute little face. Like it looks, the moment I saw it, I was like, I want to kind of, I want to make an art doll of that. Like it would be such a cute, like physical doll to have. And so, yeah, I just, I just saved loads of pictures of it because I thought it was really cute. Also, I feel bad for bats at the moment. Like bats are really struggling. They always kind of struggle at this time of year. And like everybody donate a couple of pennies to your local bat sanctuary. I love bats so much. They're so fucking cute. The little sky dogs. Oh, sky dogs. They're the only mammals that can fly. Hmm. And they are pregnant for like almost as long as humans. Uh, do you know why I know that? Because Rach sent me a person on Instagram last night and it was a pregnant bat and the person was like, bats are pregnant for six to seven months. It's such a long time. <laughs> shall, we, shall we get into this chapter? Yes. Last chapter, we were in the new world with Will and Lyra and learned more about their dynamic as they got to know each other. They met two children who told them that the town is deserted because of horrible beings called spectres who feed on adults but not children. Will and Lyra went through to Will's world so that Lyra could find out more about dust. In this chapter, Will and Lyra each go on their own fact-finding missions in Will's world. Will contacts his father's lawyer and goes to the library and the Institute of Archaeology to research his dad's disappearance. Lyra finds her way to an amazing and unusual museum where she encounters the creepiest of creepers. The alethiometer guides Lyra to a university lab where she meets Mary Malone, a physicist studying unusual shadow particles. Well, 
here we are inside the chapter and it's a fucking long one. Oh my god it's such a long chapter but it's one of my favourites and I'm a little bit sad that I'm low on spoons and energy this week because I really want to do it justice. We will, we'll get there, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about how to tackle this chapter because it's, there's a lot and it's long and we're aware that we keep you listeners for a long time so we were talking about how we might switch it up slightly and because we are very much we very much flip between will and lyra in this chapter we go back and forth between them and their storylines within this chapter stay quite separate so we are going to tackle them separately instead of going flicking between each one as the chapter does we're going to tackle will and his storyline and then lyra and hers first things first I really enjoy the illustration on this chapter. It's one of my favourite chapter illustrations that stands out to me. Hang on, I didn't even fucking look at it, did I? What a good... Well, we're such good podcasters. I'm looking at it now. <laughs> this is one of the first times I've mentioned the illustrations, I think. And it's just that, yeah, I like it. It's very Halloween-y. It's a skull. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's a it's a, a skull with a hole in it, right? Mm-hmm. That was all I had to say about that. <laughs> all right. So we're with Will. Here we go. He calls a lawyer's office, right? That I assume the number is on the the letters that he has from his uh, the ones in the green leather case thing. He hasn't gone through the green leather writing case yet, but I assume he had gone through his mother's post in order to find out where the hell they got financial support from, because I think it's from the letterheads of whoever organises their accounts. So yeah, Will rings this lawyer. They have a conversation that makes me feel really nervous, um, just because. Will is clearly trying to, like, he doesn't really trust anyone right now. And he's trying to, like, get this information without giving away too much about his own situation because he's worried that social services or the police or whatever could be called because he doesn't know how, who's looking for him or how far that extends. And so just every time the lawyer asks a question and Will gives, like, a, a, like a one-word answer, I'm just like, oh, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. I'm, like, waiting for something to go wrong. And I think Will is as well. Yeah. Don't you, don't you think this chapter highlights how similar Will and Lyra are in the terms of how they can lie? They're both very good liars. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, we kind of get a back and forth with this lawyer. Will's trying to find out things and uh, the lawyer's not really giving anything up because, really, as a lawyer, you, you can't do that shit. You can't just tell people shit <laughs> yeah. on the phone. Uh, all Will really wants to know is, is his dad alive and where is he? And eventually, eventually he gets out of the lawyer that, that we don't know and that his dad is just missing and that it was, the lawyer seems to not mind too much telling him some of this information because it's public record. Uh, basically, his dad was on an expedition, the expedition went missing and Will can find out more information because it was reported in the newspapers, which basically tips Will off to the next thing they need to be doing which is going to the library yeah so in this bit we get to know a little bit more about will and his mum like he's super upset because he wants to call his mum but he knows that he can't so he sends her a little perth card instead oh it's really cute he like holds it against himself before he puts it in the purse box oh will i also love that at the end of the conversation with the lawyer the phone runs out of money so the lawyer's definitely just there thinking that Will's put the phone down on him like halfway through a sentence. <laughs> Amazing. Although, actually, remember remember the 90s. Uh, don't phone boxes, they make a beeping noise. But is it only you that hears it though, not the person on the other end? I don't know. So I think they used to make a like beep, beep, beep when your money was running out and you knew that you only had a certain amount left. So then you would put another coin in. 
but I think it's only you, the person using the payphone, rather than the person on the other end of the phone call. I don't think they would have heard it. Okay. Yeah, in which case, yeah, it definitely sounded like Will just put the phone down <laughs> on him. He's like, oh, you can go to the library if you... Oh, hello? Hello? Okay, <laughs> okay then. He, he knows that he's going to go to the library. It mentions how he has to, like, hustle and bustle along the main street of Oxford and, like, elbow his way through crowds of pedestrians and tourists and stuff. And I just really like that because I've visited Oxford once or twice before and it is like that main high street is just absolutely rammed every time. I mean, I've mostly been on the weekend, but it's like it's a university city as well as a tourist city. It is rammed anywhere you go. I love that it compares him to Sarafina here. Yes. I pointed it out a couple of episodes ago and now I know why it stuck <laughs> in my head because Philip already told me about it last time I read the books. <laughs> but we can say you called it. You called it. I called it. I called it. She called I it. I just have really good foresight. <laughs> so after we leave Will, he's kind of, he, he wants to blend in. So he goes and he buys like a clipboard and a pen. Yeah. What I wanted to ask about this is that, did you ever do that? at school as a kid go on like the streets and ask people questions with a clipboard we didn't but i grew up in a small village that was the village that people would get sent to to do those surveys and i worked in a gift shop and a bakery and so like i on like a really quiet day sometimes you'd say yes and actually answer the surveys rather than be like no we're too busy (laughs) but yeah we get it all the time i don't ever remember doing that i remember uh oh this is a nice little link between us that listeners won't know but i grew up Kind of close to where Rich grew up, and but maybe like forty-five minutes drive away. Potential. I dr- I drove it last Christmas. The other know. side of the nearest city, yeah. basically. And my school used to go to Rich's village to for school trips, and I used to go walking there with my mum and dad all the time. So I probably saw you at some point. If you ever came into the bakery, I'm at a soldier alert. How exciting! <laughs> uh, but no, I don't remember doing this at school at all. But I re- I know it's a thing because I think there's like sorry to mention the, the in betweeners, but I think there's an episode of the in betweeners where they do it, and there's like other episodes of TV that uh, set in like the UK that I've seen over the years that have done it but I don't ever remember doing it no I don't particularly but I never did geography it was definitely something you would do as like a geography field trip as like a a mini study like of like a specific place like I remember my village Castleton a honeypot of tourism was in like one of the textbooks that we had at school the geography textbooks about being like a bubble village that was just and almost entirely the economy is based on tourism pretty much so we're having lots of fun in the pandemic I was just um, gonna say, no. <laughs> one of the local caves because there's loads of caverns around where i live uh, that do like tours and stuff of all like the rocks um <laughs> they Riveting. have switched from they've had to switch from having tour guides to doing like an app tour so you you do the tour on your phone and it like tells you It'll be like, please use the hand railing to get down to the next cavern. And then at the end of the hand railing, it'll be like, please use the hand sanitizer. Oh, wow. (laughs) Isn't it called, isn't one of them called Devil's Ass or something like that? Yes, the Devil's Ass, aka Pete Coven. Ah. Named thusly because it's a a massive crack in the mountainside. And every couple of hundred years, there's like a water level at the bottom of the cavern. Uh, every couple of hundred years the water level like will suddenly drain out if there's been like really heavy rain and it sometimes makes a gurgly farty sound amazing i remember (laughs) definitely going to see the devil's ass when i was in school because obviously everyone thought it was hilarious so it was called that 
There was a period of time in like the early 90s, late 80s, when it was, wasn't called, like for branding purposes, it was not, <laughs> it was not the devil's ass. And they like brought it back in like the late 90s, early 90s to be like, devil's ass, hooray, we can call it what it's called again. Because for a while people were too shocked by it and it was like, it's just what it's called. <laughs> like surely you'd want to see it more that, because it was called that. I definitely would. If it was called something boring, I'd be like, no, thank you. I just want to see the devil's ass. I think the people that earned it wanted a more family friendly image, but like, <laughs> no, kids love bum jokes. So why not? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Will goes to the library. He goes and finds the reference section for the year that he was born because that's the year his dad went missing. That's really shit and sad. Yeah, it really is. And he basically goes through all of this microfilm, which is something I've only ever seen in like movies. Is that like the TV turny thing and it like comes on a screen and it's like newspaper articles? I think so, yeah. And it's on like it's on a, a reel or a film thing that it's it just makes me think of people doing like yeah, research on like old murders and stuff for some reason. Like it's very much that vibe. And basically, yeah, he finds out more about his dad's expedition, which was going to Alaska, and there's not a lot of information particularly all we get to find out is that yes his dad was on this research mission basically and that their mission went missing after a few months and following that there's a brief series of articles that go on to talk about will's mum so he's really shocked to find a picture of himself a picture of himself and his mum and it's just like a sob story article about a tearful wife in waiting and it has no actual information in it. And it's like, oh, British media. Great, of course. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> it, it just, it fucking got in no way am I blaming like Will's mum for doing this because I think that she would have gone into it and thought this might help find my husband. But it's just fucking reeks of like shit, shitty British tabloids being like, look at this horrible thing. And won't you read about it? And won't you feel better about your own life? Because you're not going through this horrible thing that somebody else is going through. And it's just like, oh my God, no. British tabloid media is horrendous. And I dread to think of Will's mom with Will as a very small baby being under that lens. That must be really stressful. And oh, hello, being chased around by photographers. That doesn't sound super great, especially if you're struggling with your mental health. Awful, awful. Because there's not enough information, particularly on what he wants, um, he Will does find out that the expedition was sponsored by the Institute of Archaeology and therefore he is asking the librarian about where he can get more information on the address of the Institute of Archaeology. And he manages to blag off that it's for a school project and that he came across the expedition in doing his research on the Arctic and et cetera, et cetera. And he somehow just manages to blag it and get directions. And he's just having such a little adventure because that's where he goes next. We are with Will again at the archaeology place. I just wrote archaeology place. I'm so... The detail that I go into, Rich, are you surprised? Like, it's so so in-depth. My notes are usually horrendous. (laughs) I just can't believe the level of detail I go into. So great. Uh (laughs) So we learn that he's the second person in a month to ask about this particular thing when he's talking to the person behind the desk um, at the institute. Which starts to ring a little tiny mini alarm bell in the back of your head. I would like to ask a question here. Will is like questioning the person behind the desk and he's saying, why did this other person want to know about the dig? Why 
Does it just randomly say Star Wars? Oh, that is actually something that is related to the Cold War. Thank you. I googled it, but the only thing that came up is Star Wars. (laughs) No, so I think, so there's Cold War stuff going on, but I think there's also like a bit of a space race thing going on at that time. And Ah. it would be sometimes casually referred to as Star Wars. Correct me if I'm wrong, I did not do my due diligence of googling on that, but in my head I think that's what has stuck. I googled Star Wars Russia and I just got loads of stuff about Star Wars, the film in Russia. (laughs) I hope I'm right. I mean, people will tell us if you're not, it's fine. We learn that this guy is also looking for information about one of the men that disappeared on the trip. And then Will's like trying to keep calm because he's like, well, shit, there's somebody else looking up this shit. And it's not, it's not one of those things that's so well known that would that there would be a lot of other people looking up this stuff, especially so far after it happened. It will be unusual that two people within the space of a month. Otherwise, you wouldn't have commented on it, right, as well? Yeah, exactly. We kind of learn a little bit about how an expedition like that works. And just an interesting point is that, like, as well as it being, like, geologists and archaeologists, there was a physicist on the trip. Which makes you wonder why you'd be sending a physicist to the north. Could it be for similar purposes to why a physicist like Azriel might be in the north of Lyra's world? The physicist that was on the expedition was looking at things like the northern lights, which is quite exciting. Quite dusty. They mention polar bears, and I obviously immediately think of Yorick and just imagining if we had armoured polar bears in our world, it would be so great. We're only four chapters in, but I miss Yorick. I miss him so much. I miss him. I wonder if Philip did that just to be like, oh, and there's always polar bears, just so that we'd all just miss Yorick for a little second while we were reading. <laughs> I was going to say I miss Lee, but we were only with him like two chapters ago. <laughs> <laughs> I just miss everybody all the time. That's what lockdown does to you. Truly, truly. Will asks more about the journalist, specifically about which explorer the journalist was interested in, and then was asking what the journalist looks like. Will plays off as just being, oh, I'm just, just, just curious. It's a normal question to ask. It's just totally not, just totally normal. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, the man is a tall blonde man. And we learn that this person, uh, journalist in inverted commas, was looking for a man called Parry. So he's looking for Will's dad. And then as Will is leaving the room, he sees that the librarian is reaching for his phone. Mm-hmm. That may or may not be ominous, but... Probably I is. don't love the way that it makes Will feel. But yeah, <laughs> let's face it, it probably is. Will knows that the journalist that's just been described to him is definitely one of the men that was in his house, and not the man that he accidentally pushed down the stairs and did a manslaughter of, but the other man. It kind of reminds Will that he's done a murder, and he has a little panic attack, pretty much. He does. Yeah, this bit is super sad, and also it just made me think. God, I've been there. I've been there so many times. So it says, He was trembling hard and feeling sick because pressing at him was the knowledge that he killed someone. He was a murderer. He'd kept it at bay until now, but it was closing in on him. He'd taken a man's life. He sat still for half an hour and it was one of the worst half hours he'd ever spent. People came and went, looking at the paintings, talking in quiet voices, ignoring him. A gallery attendant stood in the doorway for a few minutes, hand behind his back, and then slowly moved away. And Will wrestled with the horror of what he'd done and he didn't move a muscle. And it really resonates, I'm sure, with a lot of people that have experienced anxiety or panic attacks because the feeling of being like overtaken by pure panic is so terrifying and you are so insular in that moment. You don't notice anything around you, which is why a lot of therapists will tell you to try and ground yourself, to try and 
keep panic attacks at bay. So like put your feet on the floor to feel the floor underneath you. Think about the sounds that you can hear and the things that you can touch because you are just so out of it when that happens. And he's been consumed by his thoughts. And that happens to me all the time. Rich, you can attest to how much I get stuck on one thing and I can't let it go and it completely consumes like every aspect of my life. Thankfully, mine aren't about murdering someone or manslaughtering Yeah, when someone. you were like, yeah, I've been there. I was like, not with the murder part. Just to, just to be clear, right? <laughs> <laughs> You've not been there with the murder part, right? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. Um, good, 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 good. <laughs> but yeah, I can, uh, I just feel for Will in this, in this passage and I'm sure a lot of other people will know those feelings as well. He calms down and he starts to like reason with why you did it. And they're all good reasons. They're all good reasons. And this is something as well that's very relatable for people that experience anxiety and panic attacks because when you do come out of it, whether it's yourself that is calming you down or somebody else um, that might be with you that's doing it, I definitely go through the reasons of like, this is why I'm thinking about this thing and this is why maybe I shouldn't be thinking about this thing or why this thing is actually okay and not as bad as I think it is or going to be. The way that it's written, I like a lot. So it's very like, he'd been defending his mother. Uh, he had the right to defend his home. His father was wanting to do that. He did it because it was a good thing to do. He did it to stop them sending the green leather, uh, to stop them stealing the green leather case. And I just think the way that it just keeps saying like, he did it, he did it, he did it. It's very, it kind of paints a picture of um, like those panicky feelings within the words themselves because it's like repetitive. And also I think a lot of calming yourself down and calming somebody else down is quite repetitive as well. Saying like, you're going to be okay. You did this, but it doesn't mean that. And just like continuing yeah. on Also just like, it's not murder. It is manslaughter. It, it was accidental. And it's really unfortunate and really kind of upsetting that he's, framed it in his head as murder and he's going through all these reasons and they're not reason good reasons to commit murder there's no good reason to commit murder but they're all good reasons why the accident happened and it's just really shit for him that he can't reframe it in his head as an accident because that is what it was he's only bloody 12 years old no we've had it repeated in this chapter that he's only 12 and it's just like just a 12 year old having a panic attack in an art gallery is so upsetting i think as well as a 12 year old would you even know what manslaughter was? I didn't. Well, exactly. Yeah. So that it's probably, like we've said about Lyra so many times, it's very black and white, isn't it? Good and evil. Uh, so for Will, it's kind of like, well, murder is a bad thing. Therefore, it just has to be a bad thing. It can't be anything else other than a bad thing. Oh, Will. Will. He um, vows in his head to find his dad. To himself, he says, I'll find you. Just help me and I'll find you and we'll look after mum and everything will be all right. And that just really made me think of all the times in the last book when Lyra was having a tough time and all she could think of was like, I'll find Asriel and everything will be all right. And it's just this idea that finding your dad will make it all all right is so heartbreaking. And the thing is as well is that obviously we're not there yet with Will. We don't know what's going to happen with his dad, but we know it didn't turn out too well for Lyra. It's fine. She found like three other dads that were all infinitely better than her real one <laughs> on the road to dads. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So he leaves the museum because it's closing. He kind of gets ushered out. And then he heads to back to the solicitor's office and he's thinking about potentially going in. And then he sees the blonde, pale man going in to the solicitor's office. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. 
and he just like plays it cool and looks away and then basically pegs it out of there when he realises the man hasn't seen him and he's safe enough that he can get out of there. It's just really sad. Like one of the last lines of the chapter is there wasn't anywhere safe. Oh, well. I just, and I know that there are a lot lot of kids in in situations where they don't feel safe, but it always always, um, upsets me when I think about the fact that there are so many kids out there that don't feel safe every kid should feel safe it's the least the least a child deserves yeah we get to go to lyra now that is technically the end of the chapter but we are not done because we have not spoken about lyra yet oh no <laughs> lyra has her own shit going oh, on she does. <laughs> lyra is on the hunt for somewhere quiet to consult the alethiometer yes she is she is kind of finding herself exploring oxford and the entirety of Will's Oxford is a lot, lot busier than Lyra's Oxford ever was. So she's struggling to find that quiet corner and that quiet space that she needs to get out this valuable item and sit there and do her alethiometer thing and find her zone. Um, she's confused by the little white patches dotting the pavements because she's never seen chewing gum before. And I just think that's such a thing you don't think about that makes something our world. Yeah, totally is that we see those little white patches on the pavement every single day because people are rubbish and they drop chewing gum all the time. I think all these things in this paragraph make our will seem super complicated. Why is there lines painted on the road? Uh, why is there red and green lights at the corner of roads? Why is there little white patches on the floor? Yeah, it, is, it would be really complicated if you just dropped into our world. Is what are these systems? What are these social systems that are existing for like cr- crossing roads and stuff that she's just never interacted before? It's just, I think it's great. And she finds herself at the gates of St. John's College, which she remembers from her world. And there's this weird thing, which is that... What the fuck is going on here? There's a few bits of this and I can't, and it happens a couple of times to Lyra in this chapter and I have no idea. I cannot remember for the life of me if this comes back up or if Philip was just like trolling us i don't know i am so, like yeah i don't remember either so lyra finds some little initials an s and a p scratched into like the cornerstone of a gate which stands in her world for simon parslow and lyra starts to wonder like that's so weird like this gate is there in my world these initials are scratched exactly there in my world like why is this in will's world is there another simon parslow in this in Will's world, does that mean there's another Lyra in this world? And then she hits the heebie-jeebies and like a shiver runs down her spine and she does what I've done on many occasions and files that for another day's problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> she is like, nope, I've used up all my spoons for today interacting with a world that is far too complicated for me. Having to think about this, would you use up more spoons than I have available to spend and I will be shelving it for later? <laughs> I just don't understand what's happening. How can this be a thing? Like how, uh, I, I, I feel like I'm reading it for the first time. <laughs> Do you want to know what? Philip's not going to tell us, not in this chapter. That's for sure. <laughs> no, he's definitely not. He's not. Yeah, it mentions as well next that this Oxford is super busy, like you mentioned, and it's not like that in Lyra's Oxford. It says, The vast numbers of people swarming on every pavement, in and out of every building, people of every sort, women dressed like men, Africans, even a group of Tartars meekly following their leader, all neatly dressed and hung, hung about with black little black cases. And then I was like, well, okay, I don't know who Tartars are in our world. Do you? No. I had to Google it. 
Yeah, because I was like, it wasn't something that had really occurred to me. I know, obviously, there are lots of things that we've talked about before that um, Philip has pulled from our world into Lyra's world, as in, like, our real world that we are in. And I can't remember in Northern Lights if we mentioned, like, the origin of where the Tartars are from and things like that, or if it's mentioned. I feel like we looked it up when we very first met them, but I am a sieve. I will have forgotten. Oh, same goldfish memory. So, basically... Any member of several Turkic-speaking peoples that collectively numbered more than 5 million in the late 20th century and lived mainly in west-central Russia along the central course of Volga River and its tributary, the Karma, and thence east to the Ural Mountains. The Tartars are also settled in Kazakhstan and, to a lesser extent, in western Siberia, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica website. But it says I looked on Wikipedia as well, because why not? And... It says that Russia is the main area where Tartars would be from in our world. And then there's others in terms like Uzbekistan, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Turkey, um, Azerbaijan, Romania, Mongolia, Israel, but Belarus and France, but the numbers go like drastically down from there. Hmm. Do we know what the little black cases are? Is that an implication that it's a school group potentially? Yeah, I just, it, like, it took me a while to figure that out as well. I just went with briefcases. Yeah. It just really, for me, hammers home the fact that Lyra's world view and Lyra's experience of the world, especially from being at Jordan College, she's grown up at the centre of a white patriarchal structure. 100%. The fact that she's shocked at seeing so many different types of people in what is Will's modern day 90s Oxford either is a sign that Will's Oxford is more diverse and there's just generally because of the slightly higher levels of advancement in technologies and transport there is more migration and more of a diverse population spread across Will's world or Lyra's had a very very insular upbringing in a very very white institution and hasn't spent much time in places where there is a more diverse population. I think my gut tells me it's the latter. I don't know though as well because is there, there's also a part of me that thinks that a lot of the quote-unquote bad guys in Northern Lights are people like the Tartars who are clearly from a different place. And it just makes me think, do they, do they villainize people that aren't from Oxford or aren't from whatever they call the UK? I can't remember. Britain with a Y. Uh, are they more likely to villainize those people? Is it a magisterium influence? Is it a like white colonial Christianity is far more like further spread in Lyra's world and has a stronger foothold on things in Lyra's world. It sounds like a pretty white supremacist world to me, Lyra's world, <laughs> as far as like the, the magisterium and the way that it holds its upholds its structures. So like it could very much be that could be a part of it and that could be a part of the way that Lyra's interacting with different cultures. Yeah, I agree. And I, I wanted to call out this bit where we see there's a bit of casual racism here from Lyra, whether she knows it or not. Um, it says, After wandering about for an hour, taking the measure of this mock Oxford, she felt hungry and bought a bar of chocolate with her £20 note. The shopkeeper looked at her oddly. Sidebar, do you think he looked at her oddly because she bought one chocolate bar with, 20, with a 20 pound note. And also the fact that she asked for chocolatle. Yes, that's probably it. But she's done that classic British person abroad thing and instead of thinking, oh, words are different here, she's just said it louder and more clearly. <laughs> yeah, it says he was from the Indies and didn't understand her accent perhaps, although she asked very clearly. The thing is, is just her assuming that the reason why he gave her a funny look 
is because he didn't understand her because he appears to be from somewhere that is not England, yeah. the UK, and not that whatever. she uses words that are different because she's from another world. Like she's the she's literally the most foreign one in the room right now. <laughs> like, but she can't see that. She finds herself at the covered market where she goes and buys an apple. Uh, I've been to the covered market. She says that it looks more like proper Oxford, and I would say, yeah, like the covered market is an older fashioned vibe i think it might be listed as a property of being like it's proper old and it's lots of lovely little market stalls and you go through and it's lots of small thin alleys and you can go around and some of it's like boutique shops now but some of it is still just like classic fish market veg market and i can see that feeling really familiar to lyra because the whole point of it is it's got this like charm of being quite older world yeah and she then finds herself outside another building that feels very Oxfordy to her, very much like her Oxford, but it's not in her Oxford, and it's the Natural History Museum. Is it not the Pitt Rivers? It is. So the Natural History Museum is the larger area at the front that she describes as being like the Great Glass Hall and the museum with stuffed animals. And there's this amazing like the Great Hall is like all of these huge skeletons. They've got like a moose skeleton and elephant skeleton, and like it's beautiful and it's a really brightly lit room. It's amazing. But then you go to the back of the museum and that's the Pitt Rivers Museum. So you go, when she notes that she's gone through into this different section of the museum, that's the Pitt Rivers. Ah, I see. That just makes us makes me think of Caroline McCall, the costume designer, who was like, you have to go, you have to go. And I was like, I've never been, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I was like, I've been, I've been. <laughs> and then she's surrounded by things that she feels really familiar with which is interesting and I love the idea of Philip writing this section because he's been and he's like absorbed all of the things and he's like I just want Lyra to go here because he's been inspired to write some of her story based on the things he's seen there like I love that this is a this is a thing as well where it says uh, she's looking in that cabinet of all the furs and stuff and then again there's a picture of the is it the Samoyed hunters that kidnapped her the exact same ones. How? I don't think Phil's going to tell us. <laughs> but yeah, and the, and the sledge, she's like the very same sledge and she recognises it despite the fact that the ropes are tied wrongly, which I love that she's snobby about that because of course, of course she is. It's Lyra. She's going to pass judgment on anything and everything. And she recognises the rope itself that's frayed and re-knotted in exactly the same spot. Like that's creepy and eerie and like, shivers up your spine weirdness there's a really beautiful sentence that just says what were these mysteries was there only one world after all which spent its time dreaming of others all right phil pat yourself on the back for a nice bit of word magic yeah (laughs) i think the bit that you mentioned about the knots and how she noticed that they were wrong and that it had been frayed and and re-knotted in the same spot it made me feel a bit sad because the next bit is and she knew it intimately, having been tied up in that very sledge for several agonising hours. And I was just like, oh, she just looked at the frayed knots for hours. Oh, Lyra, you've experienced so much trauma. I know, I know. <laughs> she comes across something, well, she comes across some skulls, some skulls that have been, would you say that they've been tre- trepanned? Is that how you say it? I think so. Every fucking chapter were just like, how do you say it? <laughs> An interesting point to make about the Pitt Rivers Museum is that one of the things that it does, a lot of museums, a lot of anthropological museums will arrange their artifacts by area 
and be like, this is all the stuff from India. This is all the stuff from China. The Pitt Rivers Museum does this really interesting thing where it goes, this is all the arrowheads from all over the world. This is all the masks from all over the world. So you're getting to compare cultures, like see cultures compared by artifact rather than by, like you don't have to be at opposite ends of the museum to see the same thing from different places. And so I think that could be a really interesting thing to think about when we're looking at this cabinet full of trepan skulls as to like, are they all from the same region or could they be from around the world now that we know how the Pitt Rivers Museum arranges its artifacts? That's interesting. Oh my God, Rich, with the behind the scenes knowledge. I have knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Also, it just means the Pitt Rivers Museum is bloody interesting because it's arranged in such a hodgepodge way that doesn't seem to make sense, but it does. It's beautiful. So basically, all these skulls have been trepanned. There's one that hadn't. There's one that hole had been made by an arrowhead, which is, that comes back later, because at first I was like, why is that important? But it is. And then my question was why, because it doesn't say here, does it, that the skulls are labelled with the name of the people that they are, that they belonged to. So why are we gendering these skulls? <laughs> I love that you always pick up on this. I didn't pick up on it at all. I don't know. They're here, apparently. All right. Fine. Not happy about it. But it's there. I should get on with it. <laughs> maybe there's like more to the history of trepanning than i know about i'm sure they did it to women and men so no there's no reason to gender them whatsoever lyra she basically wants to know more because obviously she knows that, that stanislaus grumman did this uh, or this the head that we think is stanislaus grumman but it's actually not we know that now that it's not right this is how bad my memory is so she wants to, she's interested in these skulls basically she takes out the alethiometer to ask uh, what sort of person did the skull belong to and why did he, rude, have these holes made in it? And she doesn't notice that she's being watched. By a powerful looking man in his 60s wearing a beautifully tailored linen suit and holding a Panama hat. He stood on the gallery above and looked down over the iron, iron railing. His grey hair was brushed neatly back from his smooth, tanned, barely wrinkled forehead. His eyes were large, dark and long-lashed and intense. And every minute or so, his sharp, dark, pointed tongue peeped out of the corner of his lips and flicked across them moistly. Incorrect. No, take that out of the book. I do not want to read it. (laughs) It's fucking gross. (laughs) Um... This is the most descript like this is the biggest descriptor we've ever had of anyone. It's a lot of description from Phil. I think he might be wanting us to pick up on something from this description. Pop a little fucking pin in it, why don't you? <laughs> Get your pins out. <laughs> uh, I hate it. Just the image of any character that licks their lips a lot. It's just such a go-to like thing of being like. Ugh. Do you know what it reminds me of? What? Can you guess? No. Oh, Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Tennant's yes, character. Yes. Barty Crouch <laughs> Jr. Yeah. Drink. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and that is something that they only added to the film. It's not in the book, as far as I remember. Maybe maybe David Tennant had read these books and been like, oh, that's a great villainous trait. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you guessed it. I was like, oh, it's Faye. It's Faye. What's she going to be? What's she going to be referencing? <laughs> it's going to be Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. I also really, really, really dislike that he'd been watching Lara for a few minutes. He'd watched her closely, taking in all of her, her rough and tidy hair, the bruise on her cheek, the new clothes, 
Her bare neck arched over the alethiometer and her bare legs. It's creepy as fuck. Get the fuck out, six-year-old man looking at the bare legs of a 12-year-old girl. Get out. I don't care. It's, it's reading is creepy. And I know it's supposed to be reading is creepy and we're supposed to be getting a bad vibe off this man, but it makes me immensely uncomfortable and I hate it. Do you know what's even creepier? That he fucking mops his sweaty forehead afterwards. Oh, God. Ugh. Get in the bin. Get in the, the fucking get in the, bin. Get in the sea. Get, get in the, the get sea. in the bin and then get in the sea. Get into space. Like shoot him <laughs> into space. Kick him out of the airlock. <laughs> Ugh, I fucking hate it. I agree. Uh, it's only gonna get worse. Yeah. It's only gonna get worse. So Lyra's absorbed in the alethiometer. She doesn't notice that this guy's fucking creeping on her, and she's learning all these new things. So we learn that the in the Pitt Rivers Museum it said that the skull is from the Bronze Age, but then the alethiometer says it's 33,254 years before the present day. So it's fucking old. The alethiometer tells her that the hole is there because the sorcerer had it put into his head to let the gods in. And then it adds some additional information. Slides in a little fucking bonus answer. Love it. It does. I did a Google about trepanning i think we already did a little bit of this when we had it very first mentioned in the first book but basically trepanation is like a huge part of human prehistory and people around the world have practiced it for ages (laughs) a really long time it's really accurate and i'm very scientific and i'm good at research um (laughs) if it wasn't super clear it's a procedure that involves forming a hole in the skull of a living person, either by drilling, cutting, or scraping away the layers of bone. And so quite often you see it as a circular thing because it's been drilled, but you can get square trepanning holes where someone's like cut. Oh, wow. Like repeatedly to cut the hole. And it it looks like a square, but you can see the lines either side that stick out. It looks like almost like a noughts and crosses grid. Some theories are that some trepanation is done to like relieve pressure on the brain after injuries or um, because of medical things. But also there is a lot of... In the 19th century, scholars argued that ancient humans performed trepanation to allow the passage of spirits into or out of the body of part of an initiation rite. Uh, I think lots of different cultures have different versions of it. It's been found to have happened on skeletons kind of all over the world, which is really interesting. Again, thinking pit rivers and the fact that they have things from all over the world in one place. Some trepanation is like one large hole in a skull and you see others that are multiple smaller holes and it's usually towards the front of the cranium um, or the forehead. It ranges from people have been found of like various different ages from as like young as 20 to as old as 70. They found a skeleton of somebody who was trepanned when they were no older than 12 years old, which is insane. It's got a really rich history and I'm probably not doing it any form of justice, but I just think it's really important to mention that like Phil's done some research here. Yeah, definitely. And it's all based in stuff that happens. And so it really makes sense that it's something that would happen in our world and in Lyra's world. The alethiometer drops in a little bonus answer that we mentioned, which is that there is a good deal more dust around the trepan skulls than around the one with the arrowhead. Lyra comes out of the, the, the state from these alethiometer and notices that she's not alone and the guy was stood next to her and she recognised him but couldn't place where she knew him from. Hmm, pop your pin in that again. <laughs> mm, he reminded her of someone but she couldn't think who. Hmm. And he starts to ask her about the skulls and she's put on immediately her Lizzie Brooks expressionless... I am dull, please don't pay attention to me or think that I have anything to offer. He's asking if she's looking at the trepan skulls 
And he's like, oh, do you know people do that, still do that? And she's like, yeah. He's like, hippies. Hippies do that, you know? You're far too young to remember hippies. It's such a fucking boomer thing to say. Hippies! (laughs) uh, It just, it tickled me because I've not read the word hippie in a really long time. same, same. (laughs) It's not even boomer, it's like pre-pre-boomer. What's (laughs) pre-boomer? I don't know. The golden age? I don't know. The golden girls? The golden girls. There we go. Pre-boomer, cool. (laughs) She says she was more puzzled by this man than anyone she'd met for a long time. On the one hand, he was kind and friendly and very clean and smartly dressed. But on the other hand, Pantaleman inside her pocket was plucking at her attention and begging her to be careful because he was half remembering something too. And from somewhere she sensed not a smell, but the idea of a smell. And it was the smell of dung, of putrefaction. She was reminded of Yerfa Ragnarsson's palace, where the air was perfumed, but the floor was sick with filth. I love that description. I love it so much. It's been mentioned earlier in the chapter that he... Uh, this old man has a sweet smelling handkerchief in his pocket and that yeah he's got this sweet smell to him which is the idea of somebody like smelling sickly sweet but having insidious intentions is and i love that lyra can sense it i would however like to talk about the fact that potentially he is coded as being quite effeminate or camp potentially as the way that he's described in some of it the way that he's described as like sweet smelling is quite a it does come off a little bit as queer coding which is something that we see quite a lot in the media especially with villains especially with male villains that are coded as being effeminate is a way that people did queer coding in like media when there was like all the censorship and stuff and i don't love it and it doesn't help part of that is diminished by the fact that we're getting a lot of these also really strong predatory vibes from him and obviously she is a young girl so that kind of not cancels it out but is in conflict with that coding but I do think that describing a villainous male as being well-kept, sweet-smelling, he's described as having like long eyelashes, he's given a lot of like feminine coding, which in part you're like, oh, it's describing him almost like Coulter is described as being like sickly and sweet and like enticing in some ways, but as having this like undertone. But equally, sometimes it can come off as like queer coding, which I don't love. So there's that to consider. I don't have a lot more to that I can like process and unpick through that, and I'm sure I will will come back to it. But that's yeah, how I kind it's of it's good got to that. put it out there. I'd not thought of it, so I'm going to be at like the if we see this guy again, I'm definitely going to be looking out for that now. But yeah, he's just been like all all types of creepy. The way that he has this conversation with her is very don't get in the van, little girl. Don't do it. Yeah, he's like, I can take you to someone who's done it like oh fuck no i can show you my brand new xbox if you want no no go stay back (laughs) don't talk to strangers for some reason i really hate that he's like it was nice talking to you bye bye lizzie that feels really patronizing i just i just want to punch him in the face by the end of this me too i swear there's a bit that i've missed where he stood so close to her that their hand that he brushes her hand yeah i definitely made a note of that but i can't i can't find it uh, okay, I found it. Lyra had put the alethiometer in her rucksack and was wondering how she could get away, which is fucking... A lot of women have had that experience. Or a lot of young girls have had that experience. Where Politely he... trying to get away from a man that imposes himself on your situation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she still hadn't asked it the main question and now this old man was having a conversation with her. He seemed nice enough and he certainly smelled nice. He was closer now. His hand brushed hers as he leaned across the case. No. This old man is so close to this 12 year old that he doesn't know that their hands have touched 
Get the fuck out. It's close enough that she can smell him. That's too close. Get away. And then when he, when uh, she says she's leaving, he gives her his name and address. Like, she doesn't want it. So creepy. We also get another description that you're going to have to put your little pin in. It's after he's offered to take her to meet someone who's done trepanning. He said, looking so friendly and helpful that she was very nearly tempted. But then out came that dark little tongue point as quick as a snake's flick moisten and then she shook her head we hate to see it Barty Crouch Jr no thank you (laughs) (laughs) oh fucking hell so she heads out of the museum and she finds a quiet spot to read the alethiometer she asks where she she can find a scholar who knew about dust and the alethiometer directs her luckily to the building that's just behind her. So it's not far. I don't know if you do this, but whenever Lyra's having a conversation with the alethiometer, I always, if I've got it near me, look at my copy of the book that has the alethiometer and the symbols on the front. And I try and like in my head work out what I think she might have pointed at to ask the question and what I think the alethiometer might be pointing at to answer it. See, my book doesn't have that on the front. So mine's got an alethiometer on it, but it's like half buried in snow. But yeah, I do. I try and work out what I think the symbols might have been because... I obviously always wanted to be able to read an alethiometer. <laughs> and some of the questions that she asked are so complicated that I'm like, that's got to be more than three symbols. Yeah, very true. It gave her some more information. It wants her to know more. And it says, you must concern yourself with the boy. Your task is to help him and find his father. Put your mind to that. <laughs> I love Lyra so much in this moment. She blinked. She was genuinely startled. Willard appeared out of nowhere in order to help her. (laughs) Surely that was obvious. The idea that she had come all this way in order to help him took her breath away. How dare. I'm the protagonist. (laughs) It's my story. Get out, Will. (laughs) This is about me. Oh, no. I love it. It's she's having the moment that that scholar had when she met him in prison. And he was like, you've come all this way to help me. (laughs) That's what's happening to her right now. I love that. That's so good. Um, so it tells her it's still not finished this alethiometer it's fucking yapping on at this point so here for sassy alethiometer Mm -hmm. and it says do not lie to the scholar so she goes off to find this scholar Lyra goes to the building blags her way past the porter she's feeling very much herself right now because she's like I know how scholars work I know how it works she like reads the name off the pigeonhole and blags her way in I'm really here for it Uh, she notices that it doesn't look how she thinks of something posh looking because she's used to like the finery of Oxford, which I imagine is lots of like dark wood paneling and velvet and like gilted picture frames and stuff. But she recognises that like it must be an expensive and fancy building because it's got like, I imagine it looking like a classic clinical lab university building, like modern build. Lyra thinks it's fancy because the brick walls are smoothly painted and the doors are of heavy wood aka fire doors and like the banisters are polished steel but i see that as being like that's just a standard state government building <laughs> yeah same and also like so i don't know if i can get all my words out that i want on this but a part of it like kind of smells of classism to me a little bit because she's like describing like oh i thought this would belong to poverty and it's kind of like i don't know like there's something that doesn't sit right with me with that but i can't seem to get my brain properly around it she's grown up in a world where she's constantly having to assess her position on the social ladder and like gauge it against other people's and so maybe because she's in a new world she's trying to do the same maybe i'll come back to that at some point i I can't get my but yeah something about it just sits a bit wrongly with me definitely she finds the door dark matter research unit do you think that and then somebody put r.i.p underneath it do you think someone's trying to have a fucking jerk here or what or like is that someone's initials or 
I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's because Mary's about to tell... We're about to meet someone called Mary. Um, <laughs> if it's because they're getting close, potentially getting closed down and someone's being like, ha-ha, you're not going to get your funding. Or if, like, it's an in-joke or if it's because dark matter, if they're like, ha-ha, you're doing the goth subject. I don't know. <laughs> Lyra knocks on the door and goes in. She's surprised to find that the scholar was a female. And the alethiometer hadn't said it was a man. And this was a strange world. After all, Lyra, you've got bloody female scholars in your own world. <laughs> you don't respect him. Like, it, it's not a new thing. It's just that you don't have any respect for the female scholars in your world. Get your shit together, Lyra. This is where we meet somebody called... Mary Malone. She was in her late 30s, Lyra supposed, perhaps a little older than Mrs. Coulter, which is interesting because that's the first time that we have heard that Mrs. Coulter is in and around her 30s. With short black hair and red cheeks, she wore a white coat open over a green shirt and those blue canvas trousers that so many people wore in this world, which I assume is jeans. At Lyra's question, the woman ran a hand through her hair. I am getting massive queer vibes from Mary Malone, just saying. Yes. Definitely. Female scientist, loving the lab coat, loving the jeans, definitely got that like, I think she's hot. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's got that like scruffy, I've been up all night studying vibe, like grabbing a coffee, like bit of a hot mess, but you know she's fucking clever. Yes, thank you. Yes, Mary. That's the woman for me. <laughs> Lyra asks about dust and there's a, a slight misunderstanding, of course, because obviously just means something different to us. The alethiometer has told Lyra not to lie to the scientist. So Lyra basically is doing this little dance around trying to convey what she wants and needs from Mary, whilst also not sounding conspicuous enough and out of this world enough to be considered a joke, a prank, or unstable in some way you know she doesn't want security called on her so she's having to do this funny little dance around the truth and it's so apparent how uncomfortable she is actually telling the truth as well oh god she's just she's is men- mentioned multiple times she's really frustrated about the fact that she has to tell the truth it'd be so much easier to lie she's so used <laughs> to lying that she just can't bring herself to like it's a natural instinct to lie it's not her natural instinct to answer something truthfully so she has to continuously like check herself and be like oh no wait i should be telling the truth here yeah so she's trying to find out about dust we essentially get the story here that the only reason mary is giving her the time of day is because she's knackered she's exhausted she's been up late she's just kind of bewildered by the situation and i think it's that classic thing of I think there's a little bit of like fate and dusty business going on in the background here, potentially easing the scenario and making Mary more likely to answer the questions. But also I think she's just confused. I accidentally once signed up for like a meal program thing, like a HelloFresh <laughs> or something. How is this? Like, how is this it's totally this? relevant. I got woken up. So I've been on a night shift and I got woken up after I'd had like less than an hour sleep, I'd only got just got back from my night shift and I was like in my pyjamas and I got bombarded with questions and information and I just gave the person my thing. I just signed up for it because I just didn't have the energy to make them was go away. And I feel like... It was someone that came to my door. What it was back fuck? when I was living in New Malden, yeah. I don't... I never give... I never sign up for things when people come to my door, but I was so tired. I was so bewildered that I just kind of did anything to make them go away and that that was signing. I think that's what Mary's doing a little bit here. Yeah, yeah, fair, yeah. That's, it is relevant. No, I, I, it is. I was just like, <laughs> just what are you talking about? <laughs> Why are you talking about meals? 
<laughs> so uh, sorry. It's funny. It's hilarious. I love uh, it. So there's so much going on here. I think like it's probably best to explain the main situation is that while I was trying to find out about Durst, we learn that Mary, the whole point of this dark matter research unit is that Mary is also trying to find out about Durst, but they call it something different. They call it shadows, shadow particles. And we learn that Mary has a kind of a lithiometer uh, in a computer that they call the cave. Yeah, I suppose that's a general gist and then Lyra wants to have a go on it, right? Yeah, which is very exciting. Lyra also points out something on the wall, which is this thing called the I Ching. Or the, it says I Ching, but I think it's not like iPod. I think it's I Ching. Did you Google it? Because I also Googled it. I did. And I watched some videos of people doing it. Oh, you, you, you explain it then because you've done more than me. It's very cool. The I Ching is like the alethiometer and like the cave in the way that Phillips linked them together, but it is a thing that exists in our world today. It consists of 64 hexagrams, and there are different ways that you can use to make up the hexagram. A hexagram is made up of six horizontal lines. Some of the lines are solid and some of them have a little break in the middle. And basically you can do different things to achieve a hexagram. One of them is throwing coins. And you throw three coins, it's like heads is worth three and tails is worth two. I can't remember which way around it is, it might be the other way around. But basically, you get a series of numbers and odd numbers are one type of line, like a solid line, and uh, even numbers are ones with a break in the middle. And you throw your coins like six times and it makes a little thing called a hexagram, which is these horizontal lines and you stack them up on top of each other. You then break that into two things called trigrams and use those, you get a book, there's like a book of readings, and you use those to look up in a little chart in the back of the book to find a number, and that number takes you to a section of the book that will have like a theme or something that you've got to look into, and then there's various things within that hexagram that you've made that are points that are more interesting. And you can do the same thing with sticks. You can find the numbers with sticks, and you can find the numbers with sticks that are made that are square that you roll, and they have the uh, straight and broken lines of a hexagram drawn on them. There's loads of intricacies to it, but it comes off similar to tarot. It comes off similar to quite a few different ways of doing like fortune telling things, but fortune telling seems a little bit too wishy-washy way of describing it. Do you think that this is where Philip got the idea for the alethiometer from then? I think it's probably heavily influenced by this. I think it's heavily influenced by tarot because a lot of the symbolism is the same as used in tarot cards. Yeah, surely. There's got to be a reason he's used it. And I think he's really proud of himself for throwing it in. But it's also really satisfying to watch people building their hexagrams. And I would quite like to try it sometime. Yeah, no, totally. I think that would be fun. So as we go on with this chapter, Mary's talking more about shadows or dust. And it's mentioned that dust or shadows are conscious. Yeah, I love that development. We've been sensing it. We've been sensing the sass back from the alethiometer. We know that there's a personality and a conversation happening there. And I love that Lyra is blowing Mary's mind and Mary is like a little bit blowing Lyra's mind, like a little bit. <laughs> Mary mentions the state that you need to get into to like be able to see dust or, or be aware of dust, which is obviously the same state that Lyra goes into read the alethiometer. Lyra is desperate to get in and try the cave, which is what they've dubbed Mary's alethiometer. This is where Mary's like, hey, wait a minute. I've been having this whole conversation with you about my work, my research, my thesis. You're a 12-year-old girl randomly in my office. What is going on? And Lyra has this moment again where she proves herself by using the alethiometer. It happened before when she was tricking Joffa Ratnison. It's happened a few times where she's had to prove herself by using the alethiometer. Lyra's like, fine. 
ask me a question that only you know the answer to and I will tell you. And Mary says, what did I used to do before I was a scientist? And Lyra finds out that she used to be a nun. A nun. A nun. I fucking love that she used to be a nun. It's such a cool, like, origin story. Whenever anybody talks about nuns, it makes me think about Buffy the Vampire Slayer when Buffy saves a nun from a nunnery and then there's this one line where she's like, she let me try on her wimple. <laughs> and it makes me happy. Oh, One of the other things I wanted to mention just before we go to Lyra trying out the cave is we learn that, as well as learning that dust is conscious, we learn that it's attracted to things that are made by humans or things that have been like in interaction with humans. Yes, which is new because we knew it was attracted to adults and not children, but we didn't know about its attraction to objects, which I love. Me too. So yeah, Mary used to be a nun and then she said, basically, fuck this shit because she didn't agree with what the church was doing. But Lyra's really confused by that because in her world, the church and science are so inextricably linked And she says that, like, Mary can't... She's like, how can you be doing science without thinking about what is good and what is evil? And I really love this kind of discourse because Mary's like, oh, God, if you mention that in, like, the halls with these scientists, it is embarrassing to mention good and evil. I love her reaction to that. I love how she's like, that's fucking embarrassing. Like, you cannot ask if something's good and evil. Like, that's just embarrassing. equally, you can't, like, it's a perfect example of, like, each side alienating the other. Totally. Yeah. Because, like, if the rhetoric around the church is, like, you have to have faith, you have to know if it's good or evil, like, science is cold and it doesn't matter, it's nothing to do with, like, the will of blah, 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 blah. And science is just, like, it's just the cold hard facts. We don't care about good or evil. We don't care about the morality of this. Like there's got to be a blend of the two because otherwise each side alienates the other so much more. And it becomes like just this path that can never come back together where people on different sides reach a mutual understanding, which I think is why it's so nice that Mary and Lyra are having this conversation where she's in a world where you can't get rid of religion. It's so inextricably in everything. And Mary's been in that world when she was a nun and tried to escape it. Now she's a scientist and now she's having to think about both things again. I love it. <laughs> yes. Doesn't it make you, it makes me think of um, Asriel with Mary because obviously she left the church because she didn't agree with what they were, well, it seems she left the church because she didn't agree with what was happening there. And it just made me think of Azrael. Um, but also I think the whole good and evil thing is is kind of like, we are noticing like the more that we're out of Lyra's world, we're noticing how strange Lyra's world is because we're now in our world. The whole good and evil debate, it just seems so, I'm kind of with Mary. It seems so embarrassing to think about it. Like it paints Lyra's world as being this like fairy tale land where it's like good versus evil. And that's so where we were in Northern Lights, but we're so not there anymore. Like we're in our world and we're like, Oh yeah, but which is why it's so amazing, like you said, that these things are like blending together because we don't see that very often in literature and fiction and things like that. Mm. I don't even know that it's that Lyra's world is that black and white with good and evil. I wonder if it's that Lyra is still a child, like she's still painting her world in primary colours and she's not noticed that everything blends together a little bit and there are grey areas and there are purple areas, (laughs) you know? it's There's so much more to it and I think as she's maturing she's seeing that it's not that simple totally so Lyra uses the kit if Mary gets her all hooked up to the computer it's like loads of wires on the forehead all that kind of stuff Lyra tries to get into the state that she's with the in the alethiometer while she reads the alethiometer 
and stuff starts to flash up on the screen. So lots of like patterns and light. And there's a really nice bit where I think it describes the light moving like a flock of birds, which I really liked. It makes me think of, again, the aurora. I think it's mentioned and it's such a lovely way of envisioning it. I am so I'm so interested to see what they make it look like in the TV series. Yeah, me too. Me too. Is it just going to look like a shit screensaver? Is it going to be? Like, oh, yeah, it's very like Windows 95. You can see <laughs> how like they would have done that. <laughs> uh, when you get the different, um, when you have your like MP3 player on your PC and you could choose what the sound waves did and some of them would be like, oh, you can have it so the sound waves are crashing waves or like a squiggle or like, I feel like it's going to look like that. <laughs> yeah. Lyra kind of realises that she could probably fix the cave so that it would show words or pictures instead of the patterns so that Mary could actually read it herself. Mary's gobsmacked by the whole thing. Not only is this like the best light display she's ever seen it do, but now Lyra's like, why aren't you having a conversation with it? She didn't even realise that that was anywhere on the table. (laughs) And I love it. Just Lyra gobsmacking people (laughs) is great. One thing that I will say, because it just caught my eye, there's a lot of gendered language in this chapter towards Lyra, um, which is not something that we've, we've really seen before. So there's a quote where it says she's putting um, the alethiometer away and it says, like a mother protecting her child. And then there's a bit where she is uh, saying that you could fix the cave so that it displays words and pat- uh, rather than patterns. And it says she went on a little haughtily, like a duchess describing an unsatis- unsatisfactory housemaid. And I'm just not into this kind of gendered language. Like, it's not... The reason it's jumped out to me is because it's something that we've not really seen before. It's just a bit strange to me. Yeah, I've not super noticed it. I thought it was an odd description. He likes a little simile at the moment. This is the... Also, what world is is Philip... Is Philip Pullman from that he would immediately think, like a duchess describing an unsatisfactory housemaid. Oh, we can all relate to that. We've all had housemaids. But maybe it's in the same way that Lyra's world is unrelatable to Mary and that's why he's pulled that. But even so, it's an it's something we've not seen him do a whole lot. <laughs> Lyra like stops reading the cave after she's kind of bl- completely blown Mary's mind and said you could have words on the screen instead. And she's made it show symbols as well, hasn't she? Which is like even more mind blown. Mary's like clutching her seat at this point. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's absolutely lost her shit. She's like, what the fuck is going on here? And Mary's like, oh, you're going? And then she's like, well, you've given me a strange hour, no mistake. And then Lyra's like, are you going to make it do words? Bless her. (laughs) (laughs) But then Mary says that she wants Lyra to go back there tomorrow about the same time because she wants her to show somebody else. Lyra's like, oh shit, is this a trap? But she agrees to it. And then the way that she says this next bit reminds me so much of Azriel. She says, well, all right. But remember, there's things I need to know. All right, Lyra, we get it. You're a busy kid. (laughs) Yeah. I suppose that's something we didn't mention because she wants to know. What does she want? I can't remember what she wants to know from Mary. Uh, She wants to know more about dust in general, I think. And I guess that's the point is like once Mary can engineer it so that the machine can talk, hopefully she can find out more and more about Lyra's purpose. But I mean, the alethiometer's already told Lyra what she needs to do. There is a very, very strong impression throughout this that Mary is working with a team and that that team is in danger of losing their funding. That's why she's so stressed. That's why she's drinking the coffee with no milk or sugar. She is absolutely pooped. And I think that's a really important point to bring up is that she's got this colleague that has disappeared off for funding elsewhere and that might be coming back. And there's like another colleague that she wants to show 
Lyra and the cave too. And I think that's all kind of important to remember that Mary is part of a wider team and there's other social politics occurring that we've had hints of in this chapter. Mm. Yes, which is interesting to think about because Lyra's come in and like blown Mary's mind and now Mary's like, well, shit, I've got to explain this to other these other people that are this it like like minded as I am, and I've got to tell them, oh, this girl fucking showed up from another world and just made pictures and shit in the, on the cave. Like, okay, imagine a random kid walking into your lab and completely blowing up your thesis. Like, <laughs> you've got a presentation to do to a funding committee, and some like magical twelve year old has just walked <laughs> in and been like, oh, what do you know? What dust is? I'm oh, gonna blow your mind. Oh like, my god! What here's here's my compass made out of gold. Mary's probably gonna think that she hallucinated the entire thing at the end of this. She's gonna be like, oh, I really was sleep deprived. Yep, yep, yep. Didn't happen. Yeah, which is probably one of the reasons why she asked Lyra to come back tomorrow. She's like, can you yeah. come back tomorrow so we can just prove that this is a real thing that happened? Excuse me, would you mind pinching me very hard? <laughs> What a chapter, though. What a chapter. Like, I really enjoyed it. Like, it's a tough one to to talk through because there's so much in it. And I hope we did a good job at kind of going through the main bits. Because a lot of it is stuff that we already know. And it's Lyra imparting information onto Mary and blah, blah, blah. It's a lot of information gathering and exchanging. (laughs) But there's still a lot to analyse. I love that we've got a new character that we've met. I hope we see more of Mary. Me too, yeah. Oh, there's one thing that we did forget to say. Doesn't it say that Mary has a job to do? Yes. The cave. The cave tells Lyra that Mary has a job to do. What is the job? We don't know. Get your pins out. Put a pin in it. (laughs) That kind of highlights that Mary is a character that will probably return and be a character that we get to know more of because she's got a job to do. What is it? Who knows? She's a busy lady. She's got business. She's got business. She's got business with science. (laughs) (laughs) Serafina Peckle has got business with nature. Mary Malone's got business with science. <laughs> yes. So what is the next chapter called? The next chapter is called Airmail Paper. I think we might get to find out what's in that envelope. Oh my god. Oh. Maybe. Do you have an award to give out this week? I do. Uh, it's for Mary, obviously. Yes. Because... We fucking stan hard work. And for fucking off being a nun, stan that as well. Yes, Mary. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Mine's obviously for Charles. I love him. Charlie, my fave. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. (laughs) My award is for Pan. Ooh. He's not had a lot of airtime this chapter, but he has constantly been there in Lyra's pocket this whole time. He knew something was up with the creepy guy. He knew something was up with Charles. He has been there as a source of comfort for Lyra, being secret, and unlike Lyra, is very, very good at not being the centre of attention and keeping hidden and staying quiet when he needs to. Yes, we love Pan. Amazing. Great award. We didn't really talk about Pan that much, but I appreciate that, and I agree. It's because he didn't do much. He's the unsung hero of this chapter. (laughs) (laughs) He really is. This is your pre-credits reminder that if you leave us a review you can get some free shit leave us a review screenshot it send us an email to her.materialspod at gmail.com it will enter you into a prize draw to win some cool bookmarks and maybe some stickers and we'll love you forever no matter what you get our eternal gratitude so yes that was that (laughs) 
thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rage. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking about Lyra and Pan and Mary Malone, you can find me hanging out on Twitter and Instagram at Fayley, which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my old blog posts, I'm on Medium at Faye.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about demons and dust and shadows, I'm making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes, and I'm at online shop RachMakes.co.uk. A huge thanks, as always, to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. We'll see you in two weeks' time, and don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. Bye-bye.